This is a CW Spiral, a podcast run by two Barchies and a Bughead. We're your hosts, Sabrina Reed, Michael Patterson, and Reed Gowden, bringing you history about the network, the latest news, and in-depth spoiler-filled discussions of some of our favorite shows on the CW. We are here with what's possibly going to be like just another great episode full of nostalgia um, because we're doing movies this pod. But first, as always, we have to launch into the news. And with exception to One Piece, it's been a little bit slow for the CW. Not that I'm personally complaining because perhaps they're trying to put out fires and that's good with me. Um, But first, some getting over top of the soapbox, CW and CW Mole. Please do better with the promo. Um, I feel like the arrival of Stargirl has really highlighted one of the biggest issues with promo. And by one of the biggest issues with promo, I mean the lack thereof. Um, When we were all checking on Twitter about uh, the premiere dates and everything, a lot of people were commenting about how Stargirl particularly, they did not know the new season was starting. And I think the biggest highlight of that was this past weekend at Dragon Con when some of the cast were at Dragon Con and some of the audience asked them when does season three start unbeknownst to them that season three started three days before that and I mean like does that not highlight the issue with promo here on this network it's embarrassing exactly (laughs) devoted fans of one of the biggest shows on the network did not know it was coming back and because it's the first show of the season of the fall season like you gotta do better come on now um yeah, what do you really say to that? Like, we're talking about New Era here, and here we are again. It just feels exactly like the old one. How did they not know that it started? Not that I'm, like, putting that on them at all. I, I think the center of my question is, like, how did the CW not tell them that it was on? Right. How did they not <laughs> know? <laughs> I know, as far as promo game goes, they haven't particularly been doing any worse a job than usual. They've had the graphics go out on the social pages. They've had the minor teaser here and there, but it just feels like once they announced that release date a couple of months, about a month ago with the uh, schedule, they haven't really done anything to follow up on it since until like a week or two beforehand. And then that's when you can usually see that the wheels in motion, they're telling the cast to tweet and they, they tweet out the graphics, but it felt like it wasn't really starting until like two or three days before the premiere, which in the television business is like, that's no promo whatsoever. So like, I know it's it's decent promo for CW, but that doesn't necessarily make a good promo. So like, I mean, I feel like now is the time they really need to start up in their game. Yeah, because I'm trying to think of whether or not I saw any Stargirl articles in the lead up to the premiere. And I don't think so. I know I saw, like, you had to be on the channel to see the promotions for it. And of course, mm-hmm. if you're following CW on Twitter, you would seen the posters. But I don't remember any interviews, any deep dives with the showrunner. Was there even a postmortem for the premiere? I didn't see any, no. I, I feel like the biggest story as far as when the premiere was announced was just the season three, episode one reviews that went live a couple of days before the episode. Mm-hmm. So they kind of picked up steam when the episode aired. But other than that, there wasn't much like buzz online about it. And it really feels like considering it's one of the last surviving DC shows and is leading the new charge, they should have done a bit better job of the promo here. They should have. It's shameful. CW, get better at it, please. <laughs> again, get better again. <laughs> especially because like well if there's one thing they're going to promote it's always going to be superman and lois it's their like big tentpole now walker fans don't get mad at me for saying that but it's true the biggest tentpole on superman and lois in terms of popularity 
outside of the CW, I would think, is Superman and Lois. And we do have two pieces of casting news. We have the villain and Jonathan Kent. Let's start with Bruno Mannheim. Is that the villain's name? This is the interesting thing. Now, if this couldn't have come at a better time because I just rewatched the season two finale over the weekend. So I'm all up to date on my Superman and Lois knowledge. But um, so it was just announced over the weekend. I believe Arrow's David Ramsey announced it um, at a convention that uh, Chad L. Coleman has been cast as the main villain of Superman at Lois season three. I was a big fan of Chad L. Coleman on The Walking Dead. And he also played the secondary villain of Arrow season five. So he knows his way around a superhero show. But he, we haven't been told who the villain is. But the big belief is that it will be Bruno Mannheim because he was referenced in the finale of uh, season two when uh, John Diggle, who we now know is another Earth's John Diggle, um, spoke to John Henry Irons and revealed to him that the John Henry Irons of their Earth was killed by someone called Bruno Mannheim. And now from the comics, not to get too into de- into detail, but in the comics, Bruno Mannheim's an old associate of Lex Luthor. He runs the intergang. Uh, uh, he runs the intergang industry, and um, apparently he has ties to the major Superman villain Darkseid. So if this follows the same trajectory as previous seasons, we'll be introduced to the human villain first. They'll run along like a big threat for Lois to take down, and then halfway through the season, maybe he'll uh, introduce Darkseid, which will then make it Superman's threat, and then that'll turn into the uh, main story of the season. I kind of hope it doesn't follow the same format that the last two seasons have, but you can see that format there for them. Whether or not they go dark side remains to be seen, but either way, I think Chad L. Coleman's going to be a great villain, and I, it does seem like Bruno Mannheim's who he, who he will be playing. Wait, I have so many questions. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> so, wait, Romain, you said that they mentioned this Bruno person in the season two finale? Yes. Um, okay. See, okay. I... <laughs> At the diner, when Diggle is like talking to John Henry... Yeah. Right? And he opens the, he has a file on hand. I don't know. I stopped paying attention. I will admit because none of the words, none of the people they were talking about made sense to me. I didn't know who they were. So it, it lost me. I think well, the thing- it's to the, like the, like the comic booky superhero stuff in Superman and Lois. I'm there for the broad strokes. Like I don't pick up <laughs> on these things. <laughs> so I'm glad that we have Michael to fill me yes. in on like everything that I missed because it's most things that I miss in this show. <laughs> you and I are going to be like, so Michael, who is this person? They seemed important, but we don't know. Uh, I have all my research done before the season three premiere. Um, no, I feel like the reason we kind of all missed that in the season two finale was because uh, John Diggle is obviously a big tie to the Arrowverse, but this was the same episode where we just found out that Superman at Lois does not exist in the Arrowverse. So you're like, wait a minute, that's not the same John Diggle other than the one we know. So we weren't actually paying attention to what he was saying. But yes, having rewatched it over the weekend, I can confirm that he talks about Intergang, he talks about Bruno Mannheim, and he hands um, John Henry Irons the Argus folder that reveals that uh, Bruno Mannheim was the one who killed his doppelganger. So I think that would be the big story in season three. And by the looks of things, I don't want to assume, but that's what the fans are assuming is that uh, Chad L. Coleman will be playing Bruno Mannheim. Okay. Well, we'll see. Come the premiere sometime in... <laughs> when do they usually drop? Are they, they a February, a January? It's Season two was January. Season one was February. So I feel like it's okay. not going to be held that late, hopefully. In fact, I'd rather it was held late so we have no breaks. I was just about to say, hold it for as long as you want. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, come in March. Uh, 
But and then news, I guess everyone but me was expecting because I thought we were going to go the route of we're going to give it a little time, send Jonathan um, to Metropolis and then we'll introduce somebody else. And they're like, no, you're just going to get used to the new Jonathan. Good luck with you. Um, it's going to be Michael Bishop, who looks a lot like Alex Garfin. So the twin yeah. thing is happening. It, I mean, not that they weren't twins before. We all know they were. But I want some switcheroos. So I'm very happy they look alike. Yeah, I feel like I've had my threshold of uh, he looks like Alex Garfin yesterday because after you guys said it and then I tweeted it out, literally every notification was like, OMG, he looks like Alex <laughs> Garfin. Um, uh, but it, you, you can't fault that. He really does look like Alex Garfin. I do think I feel like the twin thing will play more into effect here. But I think the main point of conversation we should have is just that it's great they've got another Jonathan. Obviously, Jonathan will continue to play a role here in the show, um, as I'm going to keep throwing in that I just recently rewatched season two. But um, Jonathan really came into his own in the end of season two. Obviously, there was the evil doppelganger, John L, as well. So it's hard to imagine the show without Jonathan. So, yeah, I do think they probably could have done with maybe writing him off for two or three episodes. Definitely would have made sense after the story while they figured himself out. But I guess the scripts were probably written and they didn't want to change them. I do believe by the time this podcast drops, season three will have commenced filming. So I guess they were just pushed for time. Um but yes, Alex Garfin is officially welcome to the ca- him to the cast via an Instagram post. They look like they're going to have a lot of chemistry. I hope they have a lot of chemistry because the brotherly bond, obviously, between Jonathan and Jordan was a huge part of the first two seasons. And I hope we see that going forward. But I am g- glad that season three of Superman always suddenly feels tangible and complete again because it was a little touch and go there. I'm excited to see what this new actor brings to the role, like his own take on the character. I hope he doesn't feel pressured to do to be the the character as it was for the first two seasons i hope that he's given that like chance to you know get in there and get comfy in jonathan's skin and do his own thing and i hope also that um the fans will be receptive to a new actor in this role that we've known for two years because i mean just think about the, the pressure he's coming into a fandom that is so passionate and I think he needs to have some space to be able to, you know, acclimate and mm-hmm. do his thing. It's not, it's not the end of the world that there's a new actor. It feels like it, but um, I know a lot of fans aren't used to recastings. <laughs> but I, again, I think I said this before when we talked about it as a dynasty fan, it does get easier. Like it just, when the actor is talented, it doesn't feel like you're, you missed out on anything. It's funny, though, because anybody who does watch shows and is in the Superman and Lois fandom are probably watching the other people freak out. And they're just like, it's, I promise you it'll be fine. We've been watching soaps for how many yeah. decades? <laughs> and you just like, get this is used. just a normal day. <laughs> yes. I'm like, great that he looks a lot like him. I do wonder um, if they'll change certain aspects of, of Jonathan's characterization. Like, are we going to fully walk away from football? Like, uh Michael Bishop looks like he'd be a photographer. I mean, I'd love a moment where he takes um, Clark's old camera and starts fiddling with it and suddenly we're a photographer because <laughs> he looks artsy. Yeah, I would love that. I feel like that would help him add his own spin to the character. What is interesting is that a lot of the positive fan response has been that Michael Bishop actually looks a lot like the Jonathan we see in the comics, uh, even more so than Jordan Elsass did. So a lot of people are like, maybe, maybe, maybe will uh, Jonathan follow in his comic book footsteps and finally become a superhero? Because the show obviously opted for Jordan to do that. But I do think this opens up 
the chance to maybe and reboot Jonathan's the wrong word. I'm not going to say reboot because what they were doing with him was really good. It was really interesting to see how he was the human side of the extraordinary family. And I do hope they stick with that at least for a little while. But I do think there's room to grow with this character. And I think Michael Bishop will thrive. And I think, I think it's up to every one of the fans to give him that chance because it's not going to be the same right away, but it could be the same or even better if time goes on. So it wouldn't be fair to him not to give him that chance. And that we're wishing him luck and the best. That's right. Uh, and cannot wait to see when they do have footage and we can see what he's bringing to the table as Jonathan. Very excited for it. And that's the end of news because, again, CW has not been putting anything out. And it, that's probably a good thing. They'll release your promo stills, please. Like, they're just, like, trickling out. Uh, but now we get to launch into our favorite movies because this is a movie-specific pod. And, Michael, we're going to start with you. All right, all right, all right. Now, when I, I've asked you this so many times, but, like, when you think of May and superhero movies what do you think what kind of movies do you think would be in my favorite movies batman i just have no idea <laughs> oh, no. i know me better than that <laughs> it's michael keaton's batman they get mm-hmm. it right every time every time um uh yes mike um batman and batman returns would be up there among my favorite films uh I shouldn't say that I grew up on them considering they're for 15s and I may have seen them on the TV before I was 15, but oh well. Um, uh, but yeah, they were definitely formative movies in my life. Um, every Batman movie I love, even Batman and Robin, but for all the wrong reasons, so we'll not talk about that one. Um, we, ha- we have obviously the Dark Knight trilogy, which is an incredible uh, Batman story about um, how Batman started the middle of his journey and how it all ended. Probably one of the greatest movie trilogies of all time. Um, just, I am Batman, not literally, but you know what I mean? I'm defined <laughs> by Batman. <laughs> I say that iconic line, I didn't even mean it. You're breaking um, news, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yes, so I am literally defined by Batman. I grew up on Batman. Uh, and my favorite, If you look at my top 10 list, at least five of them are probably Batman movies. Um uh, Batman at Mr. Freeze, Sub-Zero, another incredible animated movie. So underrated. Um, I would have to say, though, my all-time favorite movie would be Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Without question, in my opinion, the greatest sequel ever made. I did love The Terminator. It's one of the greatest horror slash thriller movies of all time, and I don't like horror movies. Um, but what T2 did was it flipped the script and decided to be a big blockbuster action movie instead. And Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator was no longer the villain of the story. He was the hero of the story. And I just, I absolutely love that. I will admit I seen the second one before I seen the first one. So I had none of that context, but like it was an incredible movie. when I was younger, I could watch it any day of the week. It remains one of the all time greatest movies. I know it's on the list for action movies, sequels, whatever, but in my opinion, it's one of the best movies of all time. Um, and then uh, what else? The Jurassic Park movies were all uh, huge, huge formative ones for me growing up. Um, I love all of them, but of course the first one stands the test of time is one of the all-time great movies. I just recently watched that for the first time. Really? Yeah. <laughs> what do you think? It was good. Oh, not the pause. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. I don't think I'll ever watch it again. Um, but like, I, you know I'd been missing out on that pop culture like context. And I think 30 years into my life, it was like, you know what? It's time. <laughs> so now <laughs> you get the whole red flare thing that is pops up in yeah. all of them. 
<laughs> yep. I've only seen the first Jurassic Park and the first Jurassic World. And that's like the extent you get, of it. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's a good segue because my other one, favorite one of the franchise is Jurassic World. <laughs> so I did enjoy that one as well. Um, yeah, I don't know where I would be without the Jurassic Park movies. They were big formative ones for me and my family. Uh, we watched them a lot growing up. The first three were major or major presence in my life uh i think i went to see the third one in the cinema and then after that i've seen the fourth fifth and sixth obviously in the cinema as well um but yeah i don't know where i'd be without the jurassic park movies they were a big staple in the patterson household um and then obviously i've seen all the more recent ones but like i said jurassic world stands the test of time but yeah i feel always feel me uh, a bit um self-conscious when people ask me to list my favorite films because they're so genre based and like isn't that me in a nutshell? I am a genre breaking news, folks. <laughs> no, I love it. It's really like we talked about our formative TV shows and now we're talking about our formative movies. And it really does give us an insight. Like it's it shows us who we are. And like mm-hmm. it makes so much sense hearing your favorite movies and seeing what you do for a living. <laughs> like it just makes so much sense. And I think it's it's perfect. Thank you. Um, no, I agree. Um I don't think I'd be where I am today if it weren't for all these movies. Now, you maybe take the Jurassic Park movies out. I still would have found my way to the comic book if, uh, franchise, whatever. But like, I am Batman. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, just, these movies defined us growing up. And I know there are a lot on both of your lists that I can't wait for you to talk about that it definitely would be on my list as well for movies I've seen probably 10, 15 times growing up. But all, the ones I've just mentioned were probably the ones that were most important to me when I was younger and they're still very important to me now. Of course, some of the more modern ones like the Dark Knight trilogy and the Jurassic World movies have come into my life in more recent years. Another franchise favorite of mine is the Predator franchise and its latest entry, Prey, is arguably my favorite of them all. So I, I do love it when things like that happen because it makes it can both make you feel like a kid, but yet at the same time, all the critic in you appreciates the movie for what it is as well so it just felt like the stars aligned with that movie so yeah that's that's they're my favorite movies in a nutshell i think you know me a lot better now but let's be honest (laughs) maybe you already knew me to begin with because there's nothing there's nothing groundbreaking in that list i mean the same can be said for me like (laughs) (laughs) i don't know did we talk about it on the podcast but i know we talked about it somewhere the three of us that like i don't believe in the term guilty pleasure did we talk about that on the podcast? I don't know if that was like, the podcast. I think that was just us. But I think it applies for my favorite movies because all of my favorite movies would be classified by most people as guilty pleasures because they're, they quote, be. yeah, they're, quote, not good or, like, Rotten Tomatoes. It's always got that the green blob. Mm-hmm. Um, but my favorite movie of all time is Legally Blonde. I don't know. Like, I was so young when it came out that I don't know how I even came into wanting to see that movie i didn't even know reese witherspoon before that but like as soon as i saw it i was like that's my favorite actress this is my favorite movie (laughs) and i I like she's right behind me if you're watching i always have reese with me um but i was just always so inspired by elle woods maybe i saw something in her that she i know she's a, a white blonde woman but she she felt different and she proved herself and i always kind of enjoyed that you know, her her uh, fearless feminism to prove people wrong. I really enjoyed that. Another one of my favorite movies is Juno. Um, it just never gets old. I even went for Halloween when I was 15, I think. 
as Michael Sarah's character. Because <laughs> I had the school shirt and I borrowed yellow pants from somebody and I had a headband. It was, people didn't um, really understand, but, you know, Aww. I didn't. Yeah. It, it didn't get a great reception because my cousin also went as Juno. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. And people were like, mm, and like, it's just a popular movie. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I, I like, I just really love um, comedies and romantic comedies. So like another, more of my favorites are like Pretty in Pink. I love that the 80s John Hughes movies, Breakfast Club, all those. Um, getting into more of the like, quote, guilty pleasures, Drive Me Crazy, starring Melissa Joan Hart and Adrian Grenier. <laughs> I was obsessed with Britney Spears in a movie named after one of her songs. I wanted to see it desperately. I think I was in kinder, first grade when it came out. And of course, my mom did not let me go see it. But my brother was 10 years older than me and he bought the DVD so I could watch it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, siblings. Um, <laughs> um, speaking of Britney Spears, Crossroads, like I'm finally in that place in my life where I can admit that it's one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. Like, say what you will about its quality, but it's, I think it's so, she was amazing in that movie. Like the Oscars were too shaken to even consider <laughs> nominating her. It was so good. Um, another one that I like, I just never get tired of is How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. I think I've seen this movie like 8,000 times. Kate Hudson is so funny. And I think she was robbed. I don't think she was nominated for a Golden Globe, but she was robbed, robbed blind. Um, another like 90s one that I love. I don't know if you guys have, if anybody's really seen this one because I don't ever really see anybody talk about it, but Empire Records it's like about this record store and it's going under and they have to save it. Oh my God. I love it so much. It's kind of cheesy and all over the place, but it's like I, when I saw, it, I think I saw it for the first time in high school and I was like, this is my favorite movie. Like, it was sense. everything that I loved. Yeah. I was like, you love a vinyl. Music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and two more of my favorites that I often like forget to include um, easy a which again, when I saw that movie, I was like, this is like Mean Girls times 100 for me. I love Emma Stone's like my third favorite actress. I love that movie. And Sweet Home Alabama. I always forget about Sweet Home Alabama because I feel like in my mind, I'm like, oh, I already have a Reese Witherspoon movie on my favorite mm -hmm. movies list. But like, I might have seen Sweet Home Alabama more than Legally Blonde, if that's possible. Like, it's just such a, a comfort movie that I could put on, quote the whole thing. It's just, like I know there's some aspects that are probably a little problematic now, a lot. Um, but I just I love a Reese Witherspoon romantic comedy and Legally Blonde and Sweet Home Alabama are like her top tier romantic comedies. Yeah, I could Sweet probably Home go Alabama on. Was with, good. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> we just ignored the the one part. It's <laughs> gonna keep going yeah. forward. You were like, she's not her daddy. We're just gonna keep going forward. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, there's a lot to kind of like take in these days, but um, mm -hmm. it's a it's a really well-acted movie, I think. Everyone's so good in it. Oh, yeah, totally. And I've honestly, like, even with all my genre stuff, every time it was family movie night, I was like, let's put on Sweet Home Alabama. Great, great <laughs> classic movie. <laughs> um, and I'm totally with you on those enjoyable movies over critical receptions. Um, I hate the term guilty pleasure, but... 
at the end of the day, if, if you're supposed to enjoy a movie and that's, and it ticks all those boxes and like it's made, it made an impression on your life and you grew up loving it and you still love it to this day, is that, did it not succeed in its purpose? Yeah. I'm not going to feel bad anymore. Like I'm not going to yeah. be made to feel bad that my favorite movies are all rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Life's too short. I'm going to watch How to Lose a guy, guy in 10 Days as many times as I want. Right. <laughs> Some people just don't like joy and I don't understand why. They're just like, it just, it wasn't giving me enough. I said, it's a rom-com. What was it supposed to be giving you other than happiness by the end? We need to launch an investigation on why romantic comedies are always so critically panned. I'm like, wait, it did what it needed to do. Like, I don't know. And I think that's a different soapbox for a different podcast. <laughs> it is. Uh, perhaps we should jot that down as a note, though, because I w- you should if you're a critic who does not care for romance, why are you um, doing the review for the right. romantic comedy? Like pass that on to someone who actually knows the genre. I always get mad when you read the, read the review and someone's like, it just didn't have enough substance for me. And it's like, it's about a girl going home after not being there for like 10 years and she gets reintroduced to the man she left behind. Like, what did you want? They have to go in and review it for what it is. You know, you can't hold it to the same standard as an Oscar movie. Like, exactly. That's a different mindset. That's a different critical lens. You just, Mm -hmm. it's like, I don't know. I, nuts. <laughs> I remember one of the major publications had a critic go into a horror movie and they gave it. Now, I'm not a horror fan, so, but, so this is not just me defending the genre, but they went into a horror movie and they gave it a very low rating when, on the review. And the, the first line was, it was terrible. Granted, I'm not a horror movie fan. I'm like, well, then why did they send you to go and say it? You know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> I'm sorry, but critics sometimes just like to be critics. I know. Basically, what we're saying is broaden your craft and your minds, people. Yeah. But I love, personally for me, I love a biopic. I also love a period piece. If it's a period piece, I've probably watched it. Like, so one of my top, I think, if not my top film, it's in at least the top five. I love Pride and Prejudice 2005. I have to make sure I put the year in because the P and like the Pride and Prejudice people will come for you if you don't like specify which one, which by the way, I know some of y'all don't like it, but this is my podcast and we're going to talk about <laughs> 2005 because it's the Kira Knightley one, right? Yes. It's she, the- that girl does a period piece like nobody's business yeah yeah exactly and she came to do what she needed to do in this movie and i love it so much i don't know i can quite quote it i'm not exactly a quoter but i've watched it near on it has to be at this point like 20 to 30 times like it's a great movie for me i'll pop it in uh, some i'll uh, watch the how many times have i watched the commentary i'm a, a a commentary person i'll watch two and a half hours of a movie and then immediately watch another two and a half hours just with the director's commentary i did that with easy a once <laughs> isn't it fun <laughs> i watched the movie and i was like i kind of want to see what emma and the director get up to so i immediately put on the commentary it was great they tell you yeah. things that you wouldn't even know you know, like how many times they film something, the, the accidental shots, things that like, you know, that's, I love when they go, so this scene is actually three scenes cut together um, mm-hmm. because so-and-so couldn't stop laughing. So like, that's why the, when they're like, why the sun keeps going back and forth in the shot, it's because it's two, like three different times. <laughs> I love when they do that. Um, I also love Walk the Line, mm-hmm. an underrated Reese Witherspoon movie, but she Academy kills. Award winner. 
she is but i feel like people forget about it they do and and they should not because this johnny cash june carter romance is everything for me but um I really love it. I also love Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman was like formative for me as a child, which it shouldn't have been, but it was. I really, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love um, Julia Roberts' rom-coms and her and Richard Gere are amazing together. Um, Pretty Woman is my favorite one, but she is great in Runaway Bride. And if you ever want to watch a romance movie that just subverts expectations, My Best Friend's Wedding is the, the one you want to come in. comedy. It is, and there's like, well, I guess I shouldn't give it away just in case people do want to tune into it, but it doesn't do what you think it's going to do by the end, and yet it mm-hmm. still works out, and it's lovely. I, I watched it for the first time a few years ago, and I was like, I can't believe I've been missing this all my life. It's so, she's amazing in it, and I, and this is neither here nor there, but I remember at the time, I was like, they need to do like a remake or something, mm-hmm. and I wanted it to be Ariana Grande and rename it like break up with your boyfriend on board after her song so I was like that's like the plot (laughs) she's like I'm bored and I'm gonna try to get my best friend to marry me now (laughs) yes she's like what about the promise we made um that we were 28 I was like girl he's engaged like I need you to calm down but it's such a great movie with some great unexpected musical moments um and Cameron Diaz singing off key at a karaoke bar it will always be iconic um other iconic things there's the craft which is the halloween movie yes i love a witch if you know me i will watch if it's a has a witch in it and there's aesthetic and vibe and possibly set in the 90s i will watch it the soundtrack's really good too it's fantastic it like i think that movies aren't really do like witch movies aren't necessarily doing it like that anymore which is not fair everyone wants to be a craggly witch in the 1600s and i'm just like can we have modern witches um, in all black doing terrible things but looking good doing it <laughs> uh, i think and i also love the crow which is like another like halloween staple it wasn't on my list but i have to do an honorary um mention because it's fantastic uh and again it's like has the great aesthetic it's all like a rock star comes back from the dead after he was murdered and now he's gonna get revenge against i believe it's a crime boss or something um and it's like all light makeup there's a crow um, flying if you haven't realized by now i did have an emo punk phase in high school (laughs) (laughs) um i was just it was a very colorful one but i i love um the punk aesthetic and so if the movie had it, I was probably watching it. Classic. Yes. Also a classic is Bring It On. Perfect movie. Um, the cheerleading movie. It didn't need sequels. It got sequels, but it didn't <laughs> need them. Have you ever seen the sequels? I've seen, at least, I believe, two of them. I know one with Hayden Panettiere, which is embarrassing. Like the the um, the crump dancing showdown in the, uh, <laughs> in the gym was horrible. And then is, this, is that also the Solange one? I have no, I was just about to ask that. I was like, is that a different one or the same one? <laughs> there's so many. Remember. There, and there's another one coming. This one's a, um, what is it? Bring it on, cheer or die or something that's coming to sci-fi. It's is like a, a horror movie? Yes. Oh my God. I, I mean, I, at least it's creative. <laughs> it is. I think I will be tuning in. Um, I do not expect to be getting my life, but it might be one of those things where it's so bad, it's good. So we'll see. Keep an open um, mind. 
Yes, open minds, <laughs> open minds everywhere. Um, like for instance, I did keep an open mind for the Devil Wears Prada, and I'm glad I did. I wasn't sure about it um, when I first watched it, and I was like, I wasn't sure about it. This is fantastic, my God. Um, mm-hmm. Anne Hathaway was doing everything she needed to do, and so was Meryl Streep. Did you see it when they countered the deal, like after the fact? After the fact, I can't quite remember what year it was. I probably wasn't. That wouldn't have been a movie that I was going to go see in theaters. I don't even know if I watched it. If it was one of those things where they put it on cable. And I watched it with commercials and got all of my life at the time. But it's just amazing. I love it. Anne Hathaway is, um, for those keeping track of how many actresses I've listed that are my favorite in this episode, <laughs> she's my second favorite actress. I love The Devil Wears Prada too. It's just, it's just a feel-good movie that you can put on. Mm-hmm. I watch a lot when I'm sick and I'm in bed because it's so comforting. Even though like, I always feel bad for Anne Hathaway's character because they just like trash her for no reason. Even I though she does like ha- kind of have like a, she has kind of like a bad attitude sometimes though. But I like that she gets humbled. She comes in there and she's like, oh, I'm, this is just a stepping stone. They're like, honey, I don't even know what you got yourself into. And then she has to be like humbled a little bit. <laughs> she does. I mean, it's, it's necessary. And then I wish there was some humbling for her friends too, because she was just doing her job and they were like, you're not around anymore. You don't do this, yeah. this, and this. And it's like, she, could she do better about being around with you guys? Yes. But the fact that you want her to just like ditch the job because it's not what she was planning to do. Is... Yeah, be supportive. I know. Now, granted, she did have, I forget the man's name who was circling around her and that was not okay. But I oh, wanted the Australian them... guy. Yeah. I wanted them to be a mentalist. They were not. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the mentalist. I don't know what his name is, but he was the mentalist. <laughs> he was. And that movie also has a great... Um, fashion montage oh yeah i think the best one i've actually ever seen i love i was watching it recently and it didn't click to me because i always was like why is the opening montage so many different women that aren't Anne?" and then it kind of clicked when they got to the montage where she changed her fashion i was like oh that's like a tie-in showing you like what she the world she's stepping into but she shows up in like a a lumpy sweater and some like black tights and some like weird platform shoes but she has to like not turn into that but like embrace the change and i mm-hmm. i for the first time realized the the mirroring of those two montages it's kind so of powerful nice. to see her kind of like step into her own and embrace that world and uh yeah i and couldn't still believe be her. it yeah, I couldn't believe after all those years, I was like, oh, the light bulb went off after many years. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys haven't watched Devil Wears Prada, you should. I feel like a lot of people have, but if you're one of the holdouts, like, just watch it. It's great. Mm-hmm. The latest entry onto the list is The Batman. Because what was it? What did it have? An emo aesthetic. So, of course, it's <laughs> the one that I fell completely in love with. Um, I love an emo Bruce. I like when they actually acknowledge that he's a very emotional man who's dealing with a lot of trauma. And, of course, who would you pick for that? Robert Pattinson. Mr. Edward Cullen himself, who hated that movie, but still it launched his career. <laughs> If you, uh, that's another thing if you haven't listened to twilight commentary like definitely should because he just rags on the movie the entire time no he does the no commentary way. on the dvd yes there's a part where he's i think it's eclipse and he's talking about how his collar is so prim like that because they put a wire in it and he said it was pretentious <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> 
Uh, he hated every moment of, of that film franchise, and he would not stop talking about how he hated every moment of that film franchise. I mean, we were all in the same boat. Like, we were loving it and watching it, but at the same time, I think we were all just like, what's, why are we doing this? <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone did it again when it hit Netflix, and it was like a, a oh, Twilight yeah. Renaissance. Twilight's not on my list, but it was very, it had a chokehold on me. I oh, will same. say that. I think yeah. I saw the first one in theaters twice on the same day. <laughs> Love that for you. I know. Oh my god! Like the first one is so bad. Like everyone. No, here's the thing. When someone says a movie is bad, but I like it, I there's something that flips in my brain. It's very lore like Gilmore. It's like, oh, you're gonna tell me this is bad? No, I'm gonna go out of my way to be like, I actually really love this. <laughs> and when they hit you with the spider monkey scene, what do you do then? I mean, I understand that it's a bad movie, but I'm like, it's like. At this point, like when you see a movie when you're in those formative years, like I think we were 15 or something when that came out, mm-hmm. like it just has so much nostalgia that like for me, like I can't just be like, I don't know. There, there's a special place in my heart for it. I don't watch it often because it is kind of painful, <laughs> but like, I don't know. It's a vibe. Oh, I get it. I was in college still fighting folks about the, the, necess- the necessity of Twilight and why people should leave other people alone when it comes to their enjoyment of it. Literally sat in a creative writing workshop and had a whole five minute conversation about how we should not have <laughs> Twilight. So I do understand. That, uh, I recently rewatched the first one. It was on TV. So no, it was not my choice. But um, uh, the aesthetic of the first one is very, very good. I really like like the, the green airy tone. None of the other movies had that. And I feel like that makes the first one surprisingly rewatchable. I do enjoy rewatching yeah. it just from a visual standpoint. It's a lot of fun. And just on the point of defending movies, no matter how bad they are. No, I'm totally with you on that. I've mentioned Batman and Robin on this podcast a lot. Um, and it is a truly awful movie, but I grew up with that. I watched it many, many times and I would happily sit down and watch it again. And even though Arnold Schwarzenegger is playing Mr. Freeze, a man whose wife is in a suspended state of frozen animation um, and he himself has been cryogenically frozen. So you think the idea of being frozen would be a bit painful, but no, he's walking around saying ice puns every five minutes. Like, can you be cold, Batman? <laughs> um, and like, I will quote that movie to, to the end of time. Um, so yes, I will defend it no matter how bad it is. I could, I have there's about 10 other movies on my list of so bad it's good. And I think at the end of the day, I said it earlier on, if you enjoy it, it's your movie, enjoy it. You know what I mean? Like, don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. And here's exactly. the thing. These movies, they're so popular for a reason. Like there's something, even if we're hate watching it, there's something that we connect to with it. And if things are that successful, it doesn't happen by accident. There's something good about it. Mm-hmm. I always say that too, like when people are like, oh, this person can't sing. And it's like, but they're one of the biggest pop stars in the world. Obviously, there's some talent there. You don't just get that successful by accident. There's something, there's hard work and talent that goes into it. And I think that too about bad movies when people are like, oh, that movie sucks. I'm like, then why are we all watching it and talking about it? There's something about it that is inherently successful. Yeah. And that's it grabs hold of you. Yeah. It's a good take though. I thought that's what I was going to have to do with the Batman because I'll be honest, I knew I was going to love it. I wasn't sure how like the other like bat fans and superhero folk were going to like it just because, you know, people went in with preconceived notions on Robert, especially because like they were like the Twilight guy. And then like you would see people like arguing on, on Twitter, like someone put his whole filmography after Twilight 
on there is like, tell me you haven't seen a movie of his since 2008, because <laughs> you don't know his range. He can do it. And I was like, wow, they really out here fighting for Robert. Yes. Um, <laughs> but it is really great. And I did love um, Zoe Kravitz as Selena Kyle. I hope she gets to return in some capacity. And I liked that um, Riddler was sort of a, a commentary on lone wolf white men who get on the internet and just start losing their minds when they, because they're not getting what they think they deserve. Yeah. And I think that's it. A lot of people were worried about what the movie would look like. And again, I'm not getting into the whole, this version of the DCEU versus that version of the DCEU. You'd be there for days trying to go through all that criticism or commentary, but there was a lot of uh, pressure on Robert Pattinson's shoulders. And I think the only thing that ever alleviated was whenever a new trailer dropped and people were like, hold on a minute, this movie looks really, really good. Um, but it was quite satisfying to have been sitting on that in that chair right from the beginning, knowing that it was going to be a good movie, knowing that you were going to love it one way or another. So it is very fulfilling now to sit here, what, six months after the movie was released? And now not only is it one of the highest grossing movies of the year, it's probably arguably one of the best received movies of the year. And Batman has never been in a better position on the big screen. So yes, I know we've talked about guilty pleasures that we love, but it's also it's also nice to be on the side of it that when people didn't, expected to be a hit you were right all along so like mm -hmm. hold that up and enjoy it <laughs> should yes. i watch it i'd recommend yes. it yeah i would okay. recommend it too you okay. do have to adjust though i'm gonna warn you now about the um believe it's that is it the intro to the nirvana song that they play over and over and over again like that you're gonna have to get used to but you won't be in a theater so you won't it won't be blasting you in the ear from the side the yeah. way the rest of us had had to deal with it it was like is this the only song you had the license to because <laughs> it is it's it's a it's definitely an unusual movie and then it's kind of like an acquired test and that it it is a very grim movie but and it's long too, right? It is long, yeah. But by the end of it, it's a whole journey. By the end of it, you'll see that it was an oddly hopeful movie as well. Mm -hmm. the, the, it's 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 surprising on many levels. And now I said we went into it with high expectations that we were absolutely surprised by it. So yeah, I I know me and Sabrina would definitely recommend it. Yes. I'll let you watch it. Know. I'll let you know if it happens. Yay! <laughs> Oh my god, that's exciting. I'll, I'll keep my excitement down though, just in case it never happens. <laughs> uh, but pivoting to TV movies uh, that are formative, um, because we also have Mole. Mole, if you stop listening, start listening now. Um, I think that one thing that we were missing that we had a lot of when we were children is the TV movie. And granted, Lifetime and Hallmark Channel still do them, but you're not really seeing TV movies anymore. And if there's a network that could bring it back, it's CW. Like, I want an event movie. I want a yeah. TV wrap-up movie. I want nostalgia. I want, I want the CW TV movie era. I think it would be... Yes. Ugh, they could bring it back and corner a market that no one else is doing. Ugh. It just feels like when we were growing up the decoms were so like it was an event every mm -hmm. time we got a new one i don't know what the release schedule was like was it every month that we got one i feel it had if it wasn't every month it was every other month but i know that like they were timing it a lot of the times to like holidays too so like you'd get um you'd get like a nice christmas movie or a nice christmas episode or you'd get like something in august right before school started because the whoever was in the main cast of the crew they were, we were going to be in a school so they're like, it's August. The kids are going back. Put on this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and they, I feel like that now, like TV movies are so centered around 
I think especially Christmas, like they're all Mm -hmm. very holiday driven because that's what got really popular on Hallmark. But even other holidays like Halloween, I feel like there's not as many Halloween original movies on TV. Maybe I'm making it up, but it feels like in the past there was a lot on like even Freeform who's not doing a ton of original movies anymore. I, I just, I think in this new era of CW, movies are a really good draw because they're very, like, it, it's non-committal. You don't have to worry about it getting canceled. You don't have to worry about tuning in for 13 weeks. Like, you can just, like, hop in and watch this event movie starring a star you might really like, and then it, by word of mouth, it gets popular. I think we're, the three of us are always on to something, and I think this is maybe our best idea yet. <laughs> I think so too. I think because I think about like their stable of like CW stars who are also crossing over into being directors. You have like CW stars who would love to do a movie in between their shows. Why can't they just do a movie like a CW movie then? Yeah, um, that's and, great. And then yeah. hop back in and give yeah. like they're always doing directing things. Like so and so wants to direct. Here's the holiday movie that we're doing. Yeah, totally. Um, and I've had an interest in history with TV movies in that. I didn't know what they were when I was younger. They'd always be on television, like on Channel 5 in the afternoon. They would, they, we would watch some random TV movie with her granny right before the, right after the soaps were on. Um, and they'd always be on. And it's only now growing up, you'd be like, oh, hold on a minute. That was a Hallmark movie. Oh, yeah, I recognize that movie. So you know where they come from now and I get where they come from. But it does, it does kind of feel like, of course, you'll always have the iconic Hallmark Christmas movies. And occasionally you'll have maybe like, a well, no, you'll have those terrible science fiction TV movies as well. But Aside from those two markets, TV movies doesn't really feel like a thing. Of course, it does feel like the concept is coming back now through streaming movies as well. Yeah. Obviously, Netflix mm-hmm. and HBO Max are doing, well, no longer Batgirl, but you get the point. Um, Netflix and HBO Max are doing things. Disney Plus is doing things. It's, just, it's nice to see them get that grand stage, but that doesn't mean there isn't room for them on TV as well. And I feel like the CW feels like the obvious stage for that. Of course, the other networks are all invested in the procedurals and getting high ratings on the night. And of course, the CW is going to try and go back to that. But like, there are a few spots in the schedule. There's no reason they couldn't fill them in with a TV movie. Even start with the Christmas one just to try and be like Hallmark and then do your own thing after that. Yeah, but not the Waltons. No oh, more the no. Waltons. Or Bebo's animated movie. I don't even know how well that did or if it did well at all. I know they showed it twice last year. Yeah. And that's all I got. Um, I no doubt there'll be reruns this year. Um, but like I, you're on to something there, TV movies and a Legends of Tomorrow character. You mentioned wrap-up movies. I feel like this writes itself. Um, like Legends of Tomorrow wrap-up movie. We've talked about it since the show was canceled. Literally feels like an obvious choice. Even if it's not a wrap-up movie, like I see um the USA show Psych, they've had three movies that are on Peacock. And I'm like, it's not even, I haven't watched them, so I don't really know, but I don't think they're like intended to wrap up a story. It's like new self-contained stories, but continuing like the thread of the character's journeys. And I think that would be so, like, I don't know why that's the only show that's doing that currently. Mm-hmm. It, it Not that it needs to be a huge trend on every network, but find like that show that really connects with people probably legends of tomorrow and like do like self-contained 90 minute movies that are like lower budget and they would draw an audience like this is like it would be an event and now that like as you said streaming movies are more accessible than ever kind of bring that exclusivity back like 
make that draw like CW original movie. Like you can watch it here and maybe it goes on some sort of streaming service. Who knows? Like that's all theirs on their streaming service. Exactly. Like make it a little bit more exclusive to bring people in. It makes sense in my mind. And I know it's probably easier said than done. Like they have to like find the financing for all this stuff and like find the time and everything, even as they're like establishing a new era of programming. I'm sure it's not like first on their list to get into the movie game, but just from a consumer's perspective, an outsider's perspective, it's something that I think we're really lacking and just like that kind of entertainment. And I know we can go on to Netflix every week and get that new little low budget rom-com that we forget about in a week. But there's something to be said about them maybe even pulling in some of their legacy stars, current stars, just like Disney Channel did. They had, they had, who's the stars that, like they had Hilary Duff on Lizzie McGuire and they had her doing movies and every other star. Like, I would love to see what somebody like Madeline Petch would bring to an original movie. That'd be fun, especially because she just did one. Um, yeah. Not for, obviously for the CW, but it's called Jane, y'all. If you haven't seen it, um, it is in select AMC theaters. And it's going to, I believe, Creator Plus, which is a, which is a streaming site. But anyway, she plays a, um, a high schooler who is losing her mind. Um, and also, it's got like a whole born, burn book vibe to it where we're like wrecking the lives of other people in her life while she's also seeing like her dead friend the entire time. It's like a, it's like a slow burn, but I was intrigued when I watched it. I need to watch it. Where is it streaming? Not to give them like... <laughs> Oh, I'm plugging anyway because I'm doing a review. Okay, cool. <laughs> like, let's look at that. Plus, I'm like, I'm gonna plug for Madeline. Um, it is. Uh, it will be on Creator Plus, but it's currently in AMC theaters. I think it hits Creator gotcha. Plus September 16th. Gotcha. I believe that's the date. Um, also, uh, Chloe Bailey is in it. So if y'all love Chloe and Hallie or just Chloe herself, she is in the movie. Good to know. But speaking of like on the movie track with things that like bring nostalgia, though. 80s, 90s Batman movies, license it, throw it on CW, you'll have a good time. I mean, I just have to talk about this because who starred in the 80s and 90s Batman movies, guys? Come on, tell me, tell me, <laughs> tell me. Michael <laughs> Keaton. Right, yeah. And George Clooney. Yeah, we'll not talk about that one. Um, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, like if the DC connection, we don't know how much longer it's going to last. Literally, the, it feels so obvious that they've never done this before. The, uh, Warner Brothers still has a say, a 12% stake in the CW. I'm sure that's enough to like squeeze a movie or two through the door. Like, of course, you, 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 anytime these big, huge major movies are on a service like HBO or AMC, they are quite talked about because having a movie like that on television is a huge thing. So why not put it on the CW where it's even more accessible to people, especially with the Warner Brothers connection? I just feel like, yeah, it'll not be a huge ratings hit because it's not brand new and it's been out for years. But if you want to fill the slot and get a, a devoted amount of viewers who've maybe never seen a good old fashioned comic book movie before on the home of comic book television, it just feels like it writes itself. And like, why hasn't it done it already yet? Get on a CW mall. Take it back to you me. know, take some notes, Mom. <laughs> I know. Speaking of DC, though, Michael, we're going to start with you for what we're watching. What is happening on Stargirl? Oh, it's quite a mysterious uh, time in Blue Valley. Um, so, yes, the gambler, which I mentioned last week, has sadly been killed by a strange entity that we don't know how, but Cindy. Uh, Courtney's former arch enemy was standing over the body with a gun and she was like I didn't do it 
even though she's made life difficult for everyone in the Justice Society. She's exonerated this week. It's very interesting. Um, There are two people in the JSA who truly believe she killed the gambler. And there are two other people in the JSA who don't. Um, So they came up with the idea that the gambler's laptop has gone missing. So they were like, the only way to figure out who killed the gambler is to find who stole his laptop. Um, So they spend the whole episode going through suspects to try and figure it out. Uh, And Starman, who returned at the start of the season or the end of last season, he came from the dead. The staff still works for him, but it works for Courtney as well. It's kind of like that thing. I don't you remember in the final season of Buffy Reed when there were all the slayers at once? They they, yeah. they reworked the magic that there were all the slayers at once when there should only have been one. And didn't the second slayer come into power when Buffy temporarily died or something like that? But anyway, so there was yeah. the the spell was awkward because there were two at once and that should never have happened this is the same situation here there shouldn't be two people who can wield the staff but now that starman's back him and courtney both are able to wield the staff at the same time so um he took the staff for a walk through to blue valley and uh, accused the shed our old-fashioned english gentleman who was a villain last season a, a major member of the isa and he was not happy to see the gambler back in town but that doesn't change the fact that the shed did the right thing and saved the town from Eclipso. So what even now he's just in Blue Valley trying to find a good old fashioned cup of tea. But Starman does not like the shed and he accused him of uh, killing the gambler. The shed was not happy about that. It started a lot of drama, but it, it basically wherever Starman goes, drama follows him because he's been dead for years. He doesn't know how to conduct himself. And Courtney's conducted a far better, more tighter JSA than he ever did. So he's struggling to fit back into the mold now that she's done a much better job. Um, and Wait, the a shed, teenager bested him when exactly, it comes to running a society. Exactly. Wow. It's a little awkward, right? <laughs> um, uh, and the shed actually likes Courtney in the new JSA. He calls him the children, um, but he hated oh. the old JSA. So uh, that's a bit of a conflict there. But long story short, Starman went to apologize to the shed and then ended up accusing him again. So that started a little bit of a war. Um, so the shed has now left Blue Valley for a little while, but he did prove that he was innocent because he was actually at the cafe teaching the woman behind the counter how to make the perfect cup of tea. So he was not there when the gambler was killed. Uh, so that rules him out for now. Um, meanwhile, the Crocs, who were Courtney's new next door neighbor, they were ISA villains in season one. They didn't appear that much, but uh, Crusher, the, the 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 husband of the, of the husband and wife purring he did show up outside the gambler's uh, trailer and angrily sped away so clearly he had something to talk to the gambler about and then decided against it and at the very end of the episode he said to his wife they can never find out what we've done which obviously then is suggesting that maybe did they kill the gambler but perhaps the biggest shock of all was that after all that was done and you clearly see that there are more suspects in town we cut to cindy and what does she have in her possession the gambler's laptop so cindy i trusted you (laughs) i still trust her i still think it's a red herring Oh, so, no, Cindy. <laughs> so there's a lot of uh, up in the earnest right now with who killed the gambler. There's a lot of conflict at the same time. And one other little thing, the, I, I, he should be the lead male character, but he's not. He's been very rare, rarely featured. Long story short, Cameron, who's an artist, he's a classmate of Courtney's and he is being set up as her long-term love interest. But um, he... Uh, 
his father was the, the main villain Icicle and he never knew that when Icicle That's a cool name Icicle. isn't it Icicle was the leader of the JSA or the ISA sorry and he was killed in season one um, after his plan went wrong um, but Cameron thinks his father died a hero he's not aware of the fact that his father was a villain and now his ice powers are starting to develop as well slowly and it's having such a negative effect on him because he's understandably depressed because his father was killed and his ice powers are now starting to be influenced by that so the two of them are having a very negative impact on his mental health so i do think he's being set up as an outside suspect could he have killed the gambler even though he never, he never met the gambler. He doesn't know who the gambler is. But all we know is that the gambler was killed by a very sharp object right to the heart. Cindy's alias is Shiv. And she has, oh. to sh- she has Shivs on her uh, uh, arms because she was experimented on by her father. So Cindy could, girl, could, it's not looking good Shev, But on the other hand, Icicle Jr., Cameron, can shoot icicles out of his hand. So could, could he have been the one who killed the gambler? So right now, anybody could have killed the gambler. All we know is that it wasn't the Shed. The Shed has left uh, Blue Valley in a black cloud. Meanwhile, uh, if there's infighting, the girlies are fighting all over Blue Valley. <laughs> um, nobody knows who can trust anyone. Courtney wants to believe the best in everyone, but Starman's using this whole, oh, I'm a veteran. I've been here before with the ISA. You can't trust these people. And it's causing a lot of conflict right now. But the, it's a very interesting time to, to be a resident of Blue Valley. Um, and the official story is that the gambler was killed by a tornado, a freak tornado. Um, so it's kind of no one believes it. And there's a lot of uncertainty in town. And next, my little sneak preview of episode three is that uh, I believe it's called the blackmail. And it will focus on the Crocs, who are the neighbors, uh, as in, could they be the potential suspects? Uh, because obviously Crusher said at the very end of the episode they must never find out what we what we did uh, they were major villains now in season one and two but they get on very well with the Whitmores uh, Courtney's family um, the wife who was called Tigress she is starting to bond with Courtney's mother they, they, they started cooking together they're besties now all of a sudden so and meanwhile Crusher he has this kind of love-hate relationship with uh, Courtney's stepfather because um, he runs the local gym and he's always like, hey, bud, you're bulking up. So he's very lighthearted, but now they're hiding a dark secret. So episode three will focus on them. And judging by the promo, I said judging like the promo, like I haven't seen it, but judging by the promo, <laughs> um, Starman being Starman will go straight in and he attacks them in a supermarket because he wants answers. And I, again, he's, he still hasn't figured out that you cannot approach things like this in a small town. So no doubt that will cause more conflict. Um, and I'm, we haven't seen much of the Crocs this season and their series regulars this season. So I'm really looking forward or I'm looking forward for everyone else to see an episode Ooh. focused on the Crocs. It's going to be a good one. Series regulars, they don't do that for nothing. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, who, who, plays, who plays Starman? Uh, Joel McHale. Oh, that's that was going to be my guess, and I just wanted to double check. <laughs> <laughs> he 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 appeared in like the first and last episode of season one, only through flashbacks, and then he appeared, in, and then we find out at the end of season one that Wait Starman's actually alive. They spent all of season two bringing him to Blue Valley. A supernatural demon rose from the grave, destroyed the town, and then was silenced before Starman finally showed up. 
Um, and then he finally showed up in the season two finale. And now he's finally a series regular through season three. They've given him the special appearance by credit. So I do get this feeling that if there is a fourth season, he may not be part of it. Because what's the point in having Starman and Stargirl in a show called Stargirl? Um, so I don't know. But he's a series regular at the moment. But I don't, I just have the sneaking suspicion that he won't be a series regular in season four. And yes, I'm manifesting season four. But we'll have to wait to get to that point. All I know is that next week's episode is a very Starman and Croc heavy episode. And no doubt Starman's going to make all the wrong decisions all over again because that's what he's been doing this season. Yeah, he's acting like a Marvel hero. How are you fighting somebody in the um, the grocery store? Exactly. Not in a small town, sir. Nobody's worried about the cleanup. <laughs> Shameful. Speaking of shame. Oh, no. Yeah. Here we go. Here we go for In the Dark Read. Let's get into the In the Dark. <laughs> Lay it on us. The series finale. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this was like just at a base level, one of the most bizarre series finales I've ever watched. It was very um, introspective and very, what's this? It, was, it was very spare. There wasn't a lot going on in it. It felt like an epilogue to what happened in the penultimate episode, but okay. So there's this character that I haven't talked about on the podcast because I hate him so much. The actor is great. That's why I hate this character. But this character, Josh, who Murphy briefly dated in season two, I think it was season two. Um, he was like, and I think he investigated like insurance or something. Again, I have no idea what this man did because every time he's on screen, I'm like, I can't deal with you right now. Um but Murphy like ghosted him. And ever since he's kind of had this vendetta against her, he's wanted to bring her down, especially this season. He was just like so committed to like getting her in jail to like, to an embarrassing extent, like the detective on the case that he was helping with um, was like, you need to go home and chill out. You're not helpful because all you want to do is put Murphy in jail. And he just didn't stop. He, he ended up being the reason that Max was shot, which I, kind of missed because I was so angry about Max dying at all that um, it took the, until watching this recently that I realized that like Josh made the call that made their whole plan go sideways. Like he inserted himself in the middle of it and made it go horribly wrong, which resulted in Max being shot. Um, but he shows up to Max's funeral in the series finale and obviously Murphy's like what the hell are you doing here can you please leave me alone and as she's delivering her um, eulogy about Max and how hard it's been for her he's like laughing because he's like I I like outsmarted her she's in pain this is all he's wanted was to see her like suffer Um, but as soon as Murphy's eulogy takes a turn for the revenge and she's like i'm gonna find whoever is responsible for this because obviously she was like not happy with the man who actually pulled the trigger going to jail um she i I guess she just the way that she knows how these things have been going in her life that there's somebody that put that in motion so once she like um says that to a whole church full of people (laughs) which is kind of awkward because the mood shift she was just like so angry which good for you you deserve to be um he immediately like was like terrified because he was like oh I thought she was just gonna give up and you know go into the night so Murphy eventually does find out that it was Josh who made the phone call and she's like not this guy again like I need to get this guy out of here so against the 
the advice of Felix. She goes to Josh's place in the middle of the night with a knife, (laughs) just a big, you know, kitchen knife. And he had fled. He set up pillows in his bed to look like it was him. And she is just like so frustrated that she couldn't have just gotten it over with. (laughs) Uh, But uh, Felix shows up and he's like, what are you doing at his place? Why are you in the middle of the night trying to kill this man? He doesn't want his best friend to become a murderer. He wants her to like heal. And like, he's like, this will not heal you. But she ends up just being like, I'm not giving up on this. I need to kill Josh. So they track him down at this cabin that he escaped to. And there's like a struggle and Josh tries to get away, but they end up tying him up (laughs) in the cabin. Guys, this was the weirdest series finale of my life. Um, So Felix tries to tell Josh, be like, just like try to talk to her, just apologize. Just please. I don't want her to kill you. I don't want her to be a murderer. Just like, even if you don't mean it, just say it. So Josh does that. Um, but Murphy's like, no, I see through this. So Felix is like, fine. If you're so dead set on this, I'm going to leave you here with your knife and your choices. It's up to you. I don't want to know. So Felix leaves and she's there with Josh, a knife and pretzel. Poor guy. Um, (laughs) And Josh tries to get away, even though he's like tied up, he like hops out of her. I wanted to say line of vision, but she's blind. So she cannot see him. He's like, he's also, I forgot to say, uh, visually impaired. He's not at the same level as Murphy, but he can't see it either as well. Um, So he like tries to get away, but she catches him before he can get out the door and she kills him. (gasps) She stabs the man to death. She throws the knife down. She says, pretzel, let's go. She walks out of the cabin, goes to a convenience store changes clothes, scrubs her hands off of the blood, puts her clothes in the dumpster. Felix picks her up and they ride off into the sunrise together. That's the series finale. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what? I was like, what do I take away from this? I don't know if I like it. I don't, I need to keep thinking on it, but I was like, I don't know if that's how I would have wanted this to end for her to murder Josh. Mm -hmm. I can see, I don't, I don't want to try to, be that person that rewrites like this is how I would have done or this is how I would have liked it but there is kind of I can see a path to Max still being alive but Murphy wanting to get that revenge and then having that like okay I don't need to kill him to like to feel like I've um, gotten even with this man I don't know I feel like there's another path here that they could have taken but I will continue to sit with this and try to understand the meaning of Murphy killing him and then just driving off. Who knows if she'll be caught for this because she left the murder weapon in the cabin with this dead man. So like Murphy (laughs) can't help you girl. Um, But congrats to in the dark for four interesting seasons. Yeah. And period end of sentence. (laughs) (laughs) Never would have imagined. Did you think that was going to be what happened? No. Uh, no. 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 <laughs> I mean, like, once you said what he did, I was like, yeah, she's killing him. But other than that, I did not think that, like, her arch nemesis was the one who set everything up. And then it now falls to her to kill him and leave the knife there. And then right off to the, in the sunset with her friend, I, I'd prefer she ride off into the sunset with Max, but apparently the writers did not agree. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. 
No thoughts, head empty. (laughs) Another one for the list of divisive series finales we've had in recent years. Yeah, I really, truly, even as it was happening, I was like, oh, she's going to like realize like, I'd rather you be alive and suffer with the consequences of your actions Mm -hmm. to deal with that, even though he doesn't really feel guilty, obviously. Um, I thought she was going to make that choice for herself, but, you know, she's made bad choices. So it's in character for her to make bad choices. At least the series has ended, so you will not be watching the police coming to knock on her door to ask her some questions. I was fully expecting, because they did a big pan out of the car driving, and I was like, are they going to like throw in like the cops being behind them and then cut to black (laughs) and at the end? I thought that would have been hilarious, though. That wasn't funny. But she had, a, I guess, a happy ending. I don't know. She had a revenge ending. Yeah. I think that's what she got. Pretzel was the real hero of In the Dark. He stuck by her side through thick and thin. So that's my takeaway. <laughs> he was the best boy, which is why he got the award. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, man. What a uh, journey. Yeah. Speaking, Speaking of, of journeys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Another series finale. Sabrina, take it away. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to preface this by saying I've only seen the premiere of Rosal New Mexico season four. However, I have edited... Nearly all of um, the episode recaps for Hidden Remote from one of our um, contributors, Elizabeth. And so I've, I've been kept abreast of what happened. And I remembered when um, it was like nine and I knew In the Dark was going on. I was like, oh, Brazil and Mexico finished. I wonder how it finished. And I went into the tags. It was just Michael and Alex Shippers screaming about like the Malik's wedding. So like, congratulations to them. Um, Michael and Alex ended wonderfully. Um, they got married. They left town together. Their husbands. Alex is going to take his last name. He's going to be Alex Garen instead of Alex Mains, which I mean, that's great for them. Love that for them and their shippers. But Liz is the lead of the show and she <laughs> got like a, a, a terrible ending. Like from what I could gather from what I read, of course, the Liz um, and Liz and Max fans are upset and they're upset. Because the series ends with her in the desert crying alone after she watches him step into a portal to his home planet to go save it. And for whatever reason, I guess she can't come. And so they're separated, but they're engaged because she proposed to him and he said yes. And I'm like, fantastic. But why are your two leads separated by light years now and she <laughs> and she doesn't know when he's coming back but she trusts that he's coming back because he's gonna marry her it's like that's great but we're not gonna see the marriage we're not gonna see mm. the wedding she's left alone in the desert crying and he at least he's not alone uh one of the newer characters dallas he came in in season three i believe um went with max which also means that maria de luca her liz's best friend also doesn't have her love interest because he went with max so we're we're love interestless for um, the two women of color. They don't have, their, their men are on um, on Oasis and now they're just waiting for them. Granted, um, no, not granted anything. I don't like it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, said how it is. <laughs> yes, I don't I like, like it. I, I, I can get down with these endings that are kind of like open-ended, ambiguous. They're more creative and maybe it leaves the door kind of like perched open for potential continuations in the future but what happened to the good old-fashioned flash-forward montage at the end of a series finale 
Well, apparently that's what they would have done had they gotten a season five. They would have had three time jumps and the last time jump would have jumped into the future to see where everybody else is. And I'm like, but you got the call about yeah, it. Yeah, you, you so, knew what was up. You, <sighs> he said I, the I show just wish for like the shippers they could have gotten that even if it was just a second, like to get that clip of in the future that like, he comes back and they get married and it's happily ever after. Like you yeah. knew this was it. Um, I don't know. I just miss that era of like the series finales feeling like series finales. Mm-hmm. Um, this to me sounds very like the original Roswell, but the original Roswell sounds like it did so much better. And that that whole is an axe departure or not get not being together thing reminds me of what went down in the season one finale of the original show. So obviously there was always hope that they'd get back together. And then the actual final season does do a little bit of a like time jump. I don't know by how long and there is a happily ever after. So it's quite disappointing that a show that was supposed to be designed as a reboot ended up not even being able to hit the same nails that the original show did. It's rare that you'll see a reboot that does it better than the original. I think we can get that out of the way. But it's sad that it didn't even try to do what the original did. And that's just if it leads a happy ending. I know. And I just don't understand. So the choice apparently was they wanted to leave it open for potential future reboots or a TV movie wrap up. And I was like, sir, with this audience viewership, no. In what world? I think they were sitting at like um, 300,000, 400,000 on and off. Um, throughout the season that's not enough for the cw to give them a tv movie the only i know we've been like talking about tv movies but specifically for dc um because that makes the most sense i just how did you like disappoint your lead like this how did you sideline your lead like this now she's just sad and alone in a desert crying like she thinks he's coming back but i'm just like i this is basically guaranteed i will never be finishing rousing new mexico (laughs) At ever. I mean, I feel worse about um, this ending than I did the season one ending, though granted the season one ending was masterful and you knew Max was coming back. But just to spoil with some people, because I don't think you guys are going to watch, Max dies at the end of season <laughs> season one after bringing her... Um, What's with the CW and killing Maxes? I, yeah, I, I just know. He brought back her sister who'd been dead for 10 years and the process killed him, but he didn't tell this that he was doing that. So she goes running to the desert and she, she sees her sister for the first time in 10 years. And then she realizes Max is, she runs to the cave where Max was and he's like dead. And Janine's Mace, Janine Mason's acting in that scene. Masterclass. Everyone should take notes from Janine. In fact, Janine's not listening right now, but I wish her the best. I want to see her be the lead of another show, a show um, where that if it's going to end, it's going to end better than that. And that like she gets to really delve into a character and not sort of her show be overtaken by like the side pair. That's what happened with Michael and Alex. They became like sort of the forefront of the show, especially in fandom. And she, her storylines were never, this is what storylines, at least for me, they just never panned out the way that you thought they would. They were never giving you that oomph that you wanted. They'd start well, and then they'd, they'd peter off somewhere or we'd be going through cyclical storylines. It was it was bad. But Rasno Mexico will always hold a special place in my heart. And Janine Mason, I'll watch anything you're in. So if you if next bag comes, I will be there. Oh, it feels like the end of an era within the dark at Roswell now. Bye, you know it. 
speaking of (laughs) dynasty we have two weeks left (laughs) (laughs) the last one uh this most recent episode these last few episodes of dynasty i have felt um part of me is like it doesn't feel like a final season kind of like did you guys know that we need to maybe do some bigger things um but I do kind of like, there's a lot of character work. There's only really one aspect of the most recent episode that I want to talk about. And it was Alexis trying to mend her relationship with her daughters. So she kidnaps them. <laughs> <laughs> she steals them in a limo and drives them for seven hours to Charleston, South Carolina, just so that they can she can prove to them and they can see for themselves that she tried as a mother and she made a lot of sacrifices for them as a mother because they just they hold this grudge that like she wasn't there for them which is true and they're valid to have that feeling because that's their truth um but she takes them to this house that she purchased after she and blake got divorced and she was like i made all these rooms for you kids to move into and to um they were all personalized to your taste and everything and we were going to move here and we were going to live together and have a happily ever after and but that all like came tumbling down she didn't actually do that because Blake threatened her that she needed to leave the country it was I don't know she was her hands were tied so she she didn't get to do anything she wanted to do with her kids and they felt that she abandoned them um and she was even going to go to England and get Amanda and tell her like I'm your mother but once she saw how much her parents loved her she was like I can't I need to make the sacrifice for my daughter because like I'm going to bring her into mess no she has a happy life here so I'm going to let her have her good childhood um and it takes a while for Amanda and Fallon to kind of warm up to this idea because they're still like why would you bring us here and show us this try to be like oh I was a good mother see and they're like but that's not the truth Ellen (laughs) (laughs) um but in the end they do kind of they, you know, they kind of see like Alexis is flawed more than we can even get it into on this podcast. <laughs> like she's done bad things, but they realize like, oh, she's the only mom we're going to have. I mean, not Amanda, obviously, um, but she did make these sacrifices and nothing was easy for anybody in the situation. And I forget the song they end up singing, but um, they have this mother daughter trio moment. And it was really sweet to see, cause that's been a big struggle throughout the whole series is especially with Fallon kind of finding peace with her parents. And she's had a even rockier relationship with Alexis than she did with Blake. Um, so I think that's, I think it's important in the run up to the series finale that those kind of big wounds are, at least there's a bandage over them now. They're not completely healed, but just to see that even in this family that is so deeply flawed and so deeply overrun with the strangest trauma ever (laughs) that they can kind of bridge gaps and bury some hatchets and there's other stuff going on but it was confusing and I want to see how it irons out before I even talk about it (laughs) that was like the most interesting uh development it was a you know it was a low-key episode but a good character development one I'm glad they managed to pull that off and the because Alexis and Fallon particularly over the years you can see that they've gotten they get on better now but I feel like maybe they never really fully addressed it because they just they just suddenly went from not getting on to getting on depending on what the episode dictated so I'm glad now before the show wraps up they got a chance to at least 
talk a bit about the history and the trauma there. Yeah, I I like that it was sort of um, Alexis being like, these are the plans that I had. But I also like that Fallon and Amanda were like, that's wonderful, but that doesn't change the years in which Mm -hmm. we did not have you. Because you have to recognize that they're grown women now. Like what happened when they when they came of age? Why weren't you there? Yeah, that's what Fallon said. Or she was like, "You left when I was fourteen, and it just felt like you evaporated, like and you were gone. Like, why does this change anything?" And Alexis is like, "I know that it doesn't, but they they were in a really bad place. These kids between Blake and Alexis, like it was kind of impossible." Um, but just, they've, there's been a lot of like clarity, especially for Fallon, like understanding who her parents were when she was a kid and like getting all the truth. I really can't wait for you guys to see the court episode from a few weeks ago, because that's mm-hmm. an episode where she like understands Blake more. <laughs> <laughs> and like with each layer, she's like, oh my gosh, can you guys just like stop? Like enough, that's, that's enough slices. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I'm hoping this is all ramping up to like an explosive finale that just kind of like blows the lid off of everything. That would be really fun. Because these have been a little bit like quieter episodes. So yeah, Fallium baby shower in the penultimate and then the series finale. It's not hitting me yet, guys. So uh, <laughs> I hope it goes out in big bonker style. It you know, needs to. I, I can't deal with another like weird finale <laughs> after in the dark. <laughs> Give me something. Right. <laughs> I think it'll be explosive and not in a bad way. I mean, they've, um, from all the reviews you've done so far of of this season, there hasn't been a bad sequence yet. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, but let's gonna keep this track okay. Let's keep that yeah. going, Dynasty Writers. <laughs> uh, so as far as things not being bad, I have to, like, just to her, um, hop over to Hershey Bay, I, episode eight of season one, I think is not my favorite episode. It's up there with episode three. Oh, it is your favorite or not your favorite? It is. Yeah, it like, was really good. Yeah. It was really good. I didn't expect it to beat the mid-season finale and it beat it by a mile, which is saying something because the mid-season finale is amazing. Yeah. There was just, so, again, so much right. going on in all corners of the episode. Again, where do we begin? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the sheriff, maybe, because like, literally, oh yeah, yeah, like so much was just revealed. You never really knew what to make of him. And it, it made sense that we learned more about him in an eccentric episode. But yeah, I didn't expect him to have that much knowledge. You see that scene when he just walked in, right, what's going on here with the supernatural? I was like, Whoa. yeah. And then they that just like, so started great. talking to him openly. I was like, oh, OK, we're doing this. <laughs> they did not want to, but them best blabbed. And they were like, dang it, best. <laughs> I love Bess. She was so good in this episode too, with the all the Elizabeth stuff. Mm-hmm. Oof. And then she prioritizes friendship too. Um, mm. And I loved the. Um, so we go from her looking at her phone. I thought she was just gazing at Elizabeth, but she literally was actually doing research, fashion <laughs> research, because her clothes aren't like when the picture is posted. She's like, "There's not. That's can't possibly have been when this was posted because this blouse and that jacket." <laughs> <laughs> We're not out yet. And I was like, yes, fashion police. Like, get this woman. Some fine detective work there. Yeah, those are the, that's the, that's what best brings to the table. 
<laughs> investigation wise that's the stuff that nancy doesn't know <laughs> yes she brings that to the table and then a well-placed old navy um plug like <laughs> that box yeah and even on her phone when she was on the website <laughs> <laughs> yes. i was like well done writers and prop crew but it's still advertising but i'll take it yeah. um but i think I've, i liked how everything in this episode is like reveals of unexpected things about the characters i don't remember if they told us ace's father was a cop um i yeah that i yeah. that felt like a surprise to me too so i don't know if they mentioned that before yeah but it's it's i sat back as like, he he was what now or that like McGinnis, McGinnis and him have a deeper relationship than him being blackmailed by him. Mm-hmm. So is Ace's dad dead or alive? That was something I, I think couldn't. He's dead. Yeah, because he's uh, McGinnis used past tense when talking about Ace's dad, and then mm-hmm. while they were doing that whole like sequence in Ace's soul or whatever that upside down was, <laughs> <laughs> um, they said that his dad didn't die that night at the hospital, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I guess he died later. I'm assuming it's it's I'm a little confused as well. I'm I assumed he passed away, but still Ace's greatest fear is the night he thought his dad was going to die. So I don't know. Maybe Ace. He was so cute, him in those big boots that were also (laughs) a plot point. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Okay, we need to dive right into Nancy just blowing the lid off of the the crooked cop in Horseshoe yes, Bay. Rally. The way she walked out of that the sheriff's office. Oh, the SOMO. Like, We're yes. here's done. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great moment. I also love that it's a moment that she gets to have because of everybody. She used all the resources at her disposal, i.e. her friends this time around. Um yeah. and everything had it was the Drew Cruz win. She got the strut, but it was the Drew Cruz win. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like it all came together there. And the funny thing is, this, this episode didn't even have much to do at the Lucy's table or the Tiffany Hudson mysteries, but it just felt like a lot of the pieces that were in play in this episode or in the series felt really came together in this episode. Because even like with the fact that they couldn't perform the ritual until Nancy and her father had figured out their drama, um, it just played in really nicely and it gave them like a, a push to finally talk about things. Yes. How do we feel about Carson? Because I don't trust him still. Yeah. He's, I feel like he's, he's still, he's still selling a bunch of snake oil. And I'm like, I'm not buying it, Carson. <laughs> I'm not buying it. <laughs> he looks like a man who knows he's about to lose his daughter. And he's desperately trying for that not to happen. Um, so he's giving her what he thinks he can give her that'll get her to drop it. And that's just not going to happen. When he said earlier in the episode, when he was like fed up with Nancy suspecting everyone, he's like, you're going to end up alone. I was like, I know you did not just say that to Nancy. It's the truth, but we're not going (laughs) to talk like that to Nancy. (laughs) I was like, a word. I was like, it was great. This argument is wonderful. And you're right. He should not have said that to her. But he was was also right. You're right. But it was below the belt. <laughs> and she, like, in true Nancy fashion, she did not listen because she no. rolls up into the hospital and still accuses Elizabeth right in front of Bess. Yeah. And does not stop. I was I, like, the decorum is not there for Nancy. Like, I think she was a better friend in this episode, but mm-hmm. she's still, like, as worried as she is about A, she's still like, we're unlocking the phone, we're getting to the bottom of this, and I will deal with the traumatic experience later. Like, she was just like, hit the ground running. But there was that scene where it pulled away and she was hugging Bess. And I was like, okay, yeah. I'm glad that she 
Nancy kind of has those, if it's not like maternal, it's not maternal instincts. It's sort of like, she's like the cool aunt. She has the the mm-hmm. aunt instincts to be like, I know when to like, to show support. And I know when I need to get right into the middle of this and fix the issue. So I like that aspect of Nancy kind of straddling that line between um, her instincts and what she tries to, to fight off her like mm-hmm. soft gooey center. So I thought that was this episode particularly when Ace was unaccounted for. I was looking she, for the, the ship watch. She was holding it together because when um, when George arrives at the door and she's like, I tried to call you, there's been an accident. It's Ace. Nancy's face, like when when they go over yeah. to me, like, oh, it's I couldn't there. tell if that, the eyes were welling up mm-hmm. because of the argument with her dad or if it like got even worse when she found out it was about Ace. Like, I couldn't decide if it was like, I'm going to assume that she was distraught over Ace, but she went right into like fight or flight. Like, okay, well, let's figure out what we need to do. Yeah, she compartmentalized because she knows that she needs to, like, if I'm going to help him, I have to do what I do. I can't mm-hmm. fall apart right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that even works with the talk with Nick. They were awkward as a mess, but like they have things to do. So they're just going to pretend like the breakup didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was a trooper in this one. I love that I did too. And I love that he got partnered with us this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I love when they like mix and match. It's so fun. I was realizing this episode too. I was like, who's my favorite character? And I was like, I think collectively as a five sum, they are all my favorite character. Like there's nobody that I dislike in this. Mm -hmm. No characters that I dislike. So I was like, I think they're all my favorite. Like if you remove any one of them, it would feel weird. Yeah. It would feel weird and different. That's the thing. Yeah, and when it cuts back to like, and I know Nancy was involved in the main story, but like when it cuts back to Nick or when it cuts back to Bess, it doesn't feel like a subplot. It just feels like you're watching another side of the story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's because the Drew crew are the main characters and that's one of the best parts about the show. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I like that they each get something to do. Like mm-hmm. um, in the show, it's not like this is supposed to be a group and it's more so Nancy doing things and everybody else is sort of waiting for her to come for information. Like, I love that it was George, even though she was like, of course it's me. And, Girl can't and- catch a break. <laughs> <laughs> she's possessed. She's in the upside down. Her sister's missing. It's like, when does George get to like, she's poor girl's always stressed. If it's not inventory, it's supernatural stuff. <laughs> that is true. And that ending did get me. I, was like, I thought we said protect Ted at all costs. <laughs> what happened? But that poor girl was in that room all day. Like George she was, was everywhere. She was like at the hospital. She was everywhere. And that poor girl, like also, how does the claw make any money? It's never open. <laughs> <laughs> Good observation. <laughs> I mean, that's not important. I can suspend my disbelief. I mean, I don't care. I was just like, they're just not serving food in this episode <laughs> no i think i think this was in her waiter outfit and she's like sweetheart do you want um ice cream and i'm like i know it's empty back there so why do we have a tray <laughs> yeah ace isn't there to cook <laughs> so <laughs> good <loser. laughs> yes good point i didn't even think of that <laughs> oh my god the claws surviving on two cents and that's just, I wonder now. I do wonder if it's like bought outright, so they don't even have to. Wor- all they have to worry about is the lights. It's powered <laughs> by George's stress. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, I will, and maybe supernatural things. I don't know. I will say though that I do like that this show does 
it's exploration of the supernatural via different cultures. Right? Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. not everybody just chanting in Latin or talking about something that happened in, um, in the Bible. Like there, everyone has uh, different cultures have different pathways to the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And I love that that's acknowledged. Yeah, definitely. And I, I feel like this episode really not just highlighted that it highlighted like the different things they can do with the supernatural as well, because the fact that obviously per George being caught in this alternate world, but like we said last week that it was one of the more terrifying episodes and then like the spirits and then this, in this world with the red eyes, that was really terrifying as well. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the one that nearly pulled her into the car. The, I, thought the when she was out the, right? <laughs> I thought when she was out on the highway, she'd be safe. I was like, Nope, Nope. Get out of there. <laughs> Basically, what we're saying is Nancy Drew is like the. Would we classify it as a horror show or like horror esque? Like a thriller. Thriller. It's the Maybe. best thriller on um, on the CW. It bumped Riverdale out the way. Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, Riverdale. <laughs> but that's <laughs> but not a surprise it. to anybody. Uh, but something might be coming for its crown though i don't know if they'll succeed as far as snatching the thrilling crown but the winchesters uh we got our uh review review copies of screeners you guys so we can do a spoiler free review of the show and personally for me i think is it my top most anticipated for fall? No, Walker Independences, and that's because Cat bumped that the uh, Winchesters out the way. But I really, really do love the Winchesters. Neck and neck for me. I feel like even Ooh. though it's still Winchesters, um, my favorite thing about the Winchesters is like it's a real show. It's a mm-hmm. show. You sit down on the couch. A real television show. Did that? In reference land to anybody. Yes. Yeah, I know where this is going. I was like, where have I heard this before? And yeah. poorly executed like, Harry Styles reference. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, Harry. <laughs> okay, that was really bad. Um, but yeah, it was it, funny. It, it's it's a it's like a WB throwback. I think we yes. said that before, but it's oh my god, I, I really do wish that people would open their minds to this and accept it for what it is just based on the new poster too it's like they're really trying to give something different here yeah and i just oh my god i really enjoy i watched the pilot again and it's fun that's like my takeaway is it's really fun and cheesy like i think that's the other thing people have to get past (laughs) because i think some people are going to forget like what they fell in love with about wb shows or or 90s supernatural shows and they're like oh my god it's so cheesy it's like so was charmed so was buffy so was all the other ones like it's just lean into the cheese it's Mm -hmm. fine it's funny a little bit of camp and i think they can go there a little bit more too yeah Definitely. Um, and no, read your uh, Harry Styles impression, what you said, everything you said. And that was actually 100% true. Um, uh, weird like or not. Show. Um, it is yeah, like a real show. It's like a real um, show. No lies detector. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I think you guys summed it up well. But now we can finally talk about this a little bit. When the trailer debuted, the three of us were like, OMG, this feels like a WB show. And having seen the first episode, I think we can definitely all agree that OMG, this feels like a WB show. It, fe- it reminded me so much of the likes of Buffet, um, a small, some of the earlier seasons of Smallville. Um, and now, uh, being the one with the nine seasons of supernatural knowledge among us, um, it 
felt like the earlier seasons of Supernatural. And I say that in the most complimentary way and that it just, it felt like one of those somewhat dark, but also full of heart kinds of supernatural dramas that yes, they could be a little haunting, they could be a little thrilling, but at the same time, the characters are so real, well-rounded. That's the word I'm looking for, well-rounded. I, I, I love the, the, the feel of it. I love the vibe of it. I love it. Everything about it to me screams late 90s, early 2000s. It's very vintage. And the CW definitely has its own kind of modern reputation as far as those kinds of shows go. But in this period of change, in this period of reinvention, I'm so happy we have a show that feels like the old days, like the old class of, like, like I said, the early 2000s. The Winchesters could very well be the most enjoyable show on TV of the fall season, perhaps even of the whole season. Did it need to happen? No. Might some Supernatural fans take issues with it? Maybe. But the truth is, as someone who has seen nine seasons of Supernatural, but also just as someone who likes damn good television, the Winchesters is shaping up to be damn good television. And I don't mean modern damn good television. I mean damn good television from the early 2000s. And that's the best kind of damn good television you could hope for. So I'm very excited to see where it goes. If I don't see damn good television with your name under it on a, <laughs> on a poster, like... Again, we're gonna come for the CW because like, that <laughs> it is the needs best to be promotion there. they're gonna get. <laughs> it is. It is the best promotion that they're gonna get. We do need to see that. Um, in quotes, your name in the a poster and in the what is it the the critics trailers they do? Yeah, yeah where like, it just pops up everywhere. <laughs> But like, but to be fair, like it's not perfect. It's a pilot. They're still trying to like iron out the kinks. But I think that the pacing was one of the things that I really liked most about it. And if they keep that up, oof, it will be great. Because there were there was dialogue that felt piloty, but mm-hmm. it didn't feel piloty in its like things happen in it mm-hmm. that I was like, oh, okay, we're really getting started here. Um, so I enjoyed the pacing too. It didn't, they weren't trying to, um, spoon feed us into this world. We just really dove headfirst into it. Yeah. And it's very self-contained. Um, Mm -hmm. like they could have like this, if they had wanted to do this to be a backdoor pilot, it really would have worked as a backdoor pilot. Um, I think anyone who tunes into it, if you're a person who's like worried that you have to watch the supernatural to enjoy this show, you do not. I mean, there, of course, there are going to be, um easter eggs in there yeah. for people who have watched it um i know when i wa- read the spoiler list i was like i don't there's two things on there. I was like that means nothing to me i see why we don't have to talk about them like we can't talk about them but it means nothing to me personally so when fans see certain scenes i'm gonna be like i'm gonna wait for the think pieces and that oh my god so and so said this and it's a reference to such and such that was said in supernatural that's gonna fly over the rest of our heads but it's gonna be it's gonna be fun i have no idea whether or not john and mary winchester like their adult versions if they're at anything like their younger versions uh, at all but the love story is going to be intriguing and uh, you can tell from the trailer too that i have no idea if john was a puppy he, he seemed like a very gruff man from what i saw of supernatural natural trailers but he's a puppy in this i love him <laughs> everybody prepare to fall in love with drake roger he is so good there are so many moments where he i don't know if it's on the page i don't know if he this is what he brings to the character but there are some like really funny like character moments where you can see his personality come out 
and he does have those like puppy dog eyes where he's kind of like oh shucks <laughs> he's like discovering this world but he the way that he does it is really commendable because he's kind of fearless and but he does have that like um that very vulnerable aspect to him as well where it's it's so easy to fall in love with him because you just you care about him instantly he's so earnest yeah. he just wants mm. to make sure everyone's okay and it's like oh he's gonna be the sweetheart of the show <laughs> i'm so glad we got to talk about this on our movie episode because i feel like this this sums it up brilliantly um i think the winchesters is going to be one of the most entertaining shows of the whole year I don't know whether it will be, it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. And again, that kind of genre is not for everyone. But just as we said in our movies conversation earlier on, this show is designed to entertain people. And I do think it will 100% achieve that goal. It looks like it's going to be a damn good time. And to round off, it looks like damn good television. <laughs> Mo, take it back to them. <laughs> it needs to be in there. <laughs> All right, so we're going to wrap up this pod, um, ending with more positivity, and it's going, our toast this week goes to the Stargirl fam for all of your optimism and your promotion since the CW isn't doing it, y'all are out here doing it for them. Uh, I, I feel like if, if you could sum up the Stargirl fandom, it's to like roll up their sleeves, fine, I'll do it myself. That is literally what they've been out here doing. They have been promoting the show nonstop. I have been right alongside them doing it as well. Um, there has been very little promo from the CW. Of course, you get the promo the day before you get the promo on the day off. But see, between Wednesday and Wednesday, it's quiet out here, y'all. But the fans have been carrying the weight. They have been promoting it on Twitter. They have been commenting on the YouTube videos. They have been sharing the link to CWTV.com to stream the next day. And they have been telling people to tune in on Wednesday nights. It's wonderful to say the Stargirl family was always such a positive place to be. But I feel like now that they've seen the work they have to do, you really you get to see that come across. And they're just they're, it's lovely to be a part of that fan now. Yeah, they had the advantage of seeing everything go to to crap in may <laughs> and they they took our advice to like be on their necks from the the minute the show is on the air or even before um so i'm happy to see them putting in the fighting the good fight from the get-go mm -hmm. and not showing up late like a lot of us had to because we had the rug pulled out from underneath mm -hmm. us <laughs> and they refused to let that happen so star girl is trending y'all should get hashtag renew star girl trending too um it deserves a season four and really, really hope that it gets a season four. Me too. Season three could be the best yet. You heard it here first, folks. So <laughs> keep doing everything you're doing. Um, like I said, it's a joy to be a part of that fandom. And I hope we're here next year having the exact same conversation so that we can renew it for season five. I hope. <laughs> Manifest. <laughs> Manifest. Yes. Manifesting that dream. All right, well, that ends this glorious podcast episode. Um, we are the CW Spiral. I'm Sabrina. I'm Michael. And I'm Reed. Let's start, girl, y'all.